Hey everybody, Justin Robert Young here. Before we get started on today's episode, I wanted to put two things in front of you real quick. Number one, our ebook of transcripts, the complete transcripts, including our one bonus episode, is now available. You can go ahead and get it right now on Amazon. Find the link at raisethedeadpodcast.com. The second episode of those transcripts is the bonus one. It's all about Frank Sinatra and the mob and the mob hearings. If you saw The Irishman, then imagine the raise the dead counter narrative to what is happening on the union side of The Irishman. If you are currently enrolled in Kindle Unlimited, you can read it for free. So go check it out. Raise the Dead, Nixon versus Kennedy, The Complete Transcripts. The audiobook, I, I, I know, I know. Somebody's yelling, what about the audiobook? Audiobook is right now in the hands of Audible. They are approving it. Soon as it's ready to go, trust me, I'll let you know. And we're coming up on the end of the season. So I would love to do a bonus episode at the end of this where you guys can send in any questions that you might have, either on the research or where we're going next, literally anything. Uh, send it on in, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. We'll do a big episode after we are done where I answer any and all questions that you might have. Just do me a favor for sorting sake, put the subject line as raise the dead mailbag. And now, our episode. Wake up, get dressed, get food, get to the event, make your speech, shake hands, get back on the road, loophole comes in, don't let it affect you, another event, another speech, more hands, more people, more moments, all of them the biggest mistake of your life, all of them the moment that defines you forever. Your staff is tired, you're tired, you project leadership. If you can't lead a campaign, you can't lead a nation. The crowds give you energy. Each moment of unbroken eye contact with somebody who believes in you gives you the strength to take the next step. They know you are the future. They pay with their attention, with their enthusiasm, with their hard-earned dollars. They pay with their faith. If you can't deliver, you're disappointing them. You're disappointing your staff. You are disappointing yourself. This is your life. This is the moment you've lived for. The spotlight finally on you. Moments blur by before you realize they pass. A split second that lasts forever in history. In 1960, in 2016, they live eternal. You've got to talk about it in the place where it's a great problem and not just in New York, as I talk about here today. And I Manhattan, November 2nd, 1960. The crowd is as loud as Republican candidate for president Richard Nixon has ever heard it. He's next to the man who gave him his greatest break in politics. Dwight D. Eisenhower is finally spending his political capital at the moment that Dick needs it the most. With election day around the corner, this is the moment the tide turns for good. This is the moment he knows he'll be president. October 7th. 2016, Trump Tower. Republican nominee Donald Trump sits in front of a camera and apologizes for a video in which he laughingly described a sexual assault. I said it, I was wrong, and I apologize. The Republican Party has announced that they'll no longer support his campaign. October 13th, 1960. A mob of protesters are screaming at vice presidential candidate Lyndon B. Johnson. An irate woman spits in the face of his wife, Lady Bird. Cameras record it all. And now for the first opening statement by Senator John F. Kennedy. 
September 26, 1960, John F. Kennedy looks down the barrel of a television studio camera. He's about to take part in the first televised presidential debate. The hairs on the back of his tanned neck raise. A failure at this stage makes him a laughing stock. November 7, 2016, Reynolds Coliseum. Raleigh, North Carolina. The crowd screams as Hillary Clinton has her hands held aloft by John Bon Jovi and Lady Gaga. Tomorrow, she'll get confirmation. Tomorrow, she'll be president. Love trumps hate. Thank you. Let's go vote, North Carolina. God bless you. Thank you all. These are only the moments the public sees there are millions more just below the surface and that's what we explore tonight the reality behind the most famous television debate in history the moment that richard nixon found out someone had stolen information about him that could kill his career and how all of the final months of 1960 can help explain the 2016 race we're still coming to grips with for us, it's information. For the candidates, it's reality. Try to hang on, dear listener. You're about to enter the final phase of the race for the White House, disorienting, consequential, and draining. Campaigns aren't won. They're survived. And at the end, there can only be one survivor. News dies and becomes history, but tonight, oh yeah, we raise the dead. How are you, sir? Congratulations on getting through your first presidential debate. Yeah, I like what did you What did you think? I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. It's Donald Trump is in the spin room after his first debate with Hillary Clinton in 2016. He isn't supposed to be. The tradition after a presidential debate is for the candidate to let his performance speak for itself. Let the surrogates push back on the press. But here's Trump talking to Bloomberg reporter Mark Halperin. Why? Because his presidential debate debut is bad. He audibly sniffs into the mic, compares Russian hackers to some dude weighing 400 pounds sitting on his bed and generally looks unready. Everyone knows what a bad first debate can mean. And so, in the spin room, Trump tries to change the subject. She did, but, I, you know, I, I didn't want to do my final attack, which was to attack her husband on what took place with respect to him and his life and, and all of the things that took place because Chelsea, who I happen to think is a wonderful young lady, was in the room and I just didn't think it would be appropriate despite the fact that she's... Everyone knows what a bad first debate can mean because everyone knows the ghost story of 1960. In fact, I would hazard a guess that before you listen to this podcast, it might have been the only thing that you knew about the 1960 race. John F. Kennedy beat Richard Nixon, and it heralded the television era. Kennedy wore makeup. Nixon didn't. Radio listeners thought Nixon won, and so on, and so on, and so on. Well, I'm here to tell you the truth, and the truth is this. JFK didn't win that debate. Nixon lost it. Want proof? I have the audio. When is this campaign going to begin, Mr. Vice President? On the day after Labor Day or one of the other traditional starting dates? And this is my answer. This campaign begins tonight, here and now, and it goes on. This is Richard Nixon at the Republican National Convention as he's accepting his party's nomination. He's about to ruin everything. And I announce to you tonight, and I pledge to you, that I personally will carry this campaign into every one of the 50 states of this nation between now and November the 8th. Nixon announces that he's going to visit all 50 states between the convention and election day. His rationale? 
the majority of the Northeast is lost. So to win, he'll have to sew up every state he can. An intensive barnstorming tour would not only demonstrate effort and vigor, it would tilt the map in his favor. As history proves, it's a decision he pays for with his own blood. Not only did it put Nixon on the hook to spend a ridiculous amount of time on the road, it committed him to visiting states that he'd easily carry instead of those that were on the fence and could benefit from more face time with the candidate. It also puts a huge physical strain on Nixon. And there's no bigger example of this than what happens in Greensboro, North Carolina. It's an August 17th event, and Nixon cracks his knee on a car door. After a night of suffering intense swelling and pain, he gets the knee drained at a local hospital the next day. It's not enough. Just as Nixon needs to be on the road the most in the middle of a presidential campaign, he checks in to the Walter Reed Hospital in Washington, D.C. There he spends a total of two weeks as Kennedy continues to build momentum across the country. Now, that's bad luck. Like Hillary fainting after the 9-11 memorial in 2016 or Bernie Sanders having a heart attack in 2019. These things happen. That's not the reason he loses. The reason he loses is that after getting out of the hospital, a perfectly legitimate excuse to beg off his dumb pledge, he decides to stick to it. And now that he's weeks behind, the schedule is even more intense. All of this is happening with three weeks to go before the first televised presidential debate in history. And so an already road-weary Nixon gets released back on the trail and the signs of the fatigue and the failing strategy are starting to dovetail into something ugly. Here's the best story that illustrates that. After a campaign stop in Iowa, a state he was definitely going to win, by the way, draws little press attention, Nixon snaps. Here's the picture. Nixon's in the backseat, and he's arguing with one of his aides in the front passenger seat. The fight gets so intense that Nixon starts kicking the seat in front of him. He does it over and over and over and over and over again. He does it so hard that the seat breaks. The driver of the car is forced to pull over and reshuffle the passengers after Nixon apologizes for his actions to the aide. The only saving grace, ironically, is that there was no traveling press behind them to record the embarrassing incident. And even then, the injury, the schedule, the bad strategy, there is one method to Nixon's madness. Nixon believes he can afford to push himself on the trail because his real strength is going to be those televised debates. Contrary to the modern myth that we have about these events, which usually casts Nixon in the role as the doddering old guard who is surprised by this newfangled mode of communication. Nixon had every right to be arrogant heading into this clash. Because up till this point, Nixon's the king of television, baby. In 1952, after the press tries to derail his vice presidential nomination... Nixon goes on television and defends himself. My fellow Americans, I come before you tonight as a candidate for the vice presidency and as a man whose honesty and, and integrity 
has been questioned. That speech garners the largest television audience ever, and Nixon successfully keeps his spot on the ticket. In 1959, Nixon squares off against a more intense opponent across enemy lines. He finds himself in Moscow in the Soviet Union in front of cameras debating the merits of American capitalism with Soviet First Secretary Nikita Khrushchev himself. While Khrushchev blusters, Nixon coolly counters. All that I can say from the way you talk and the way you dominate the conversation, you would have made a good lawyer yourself. <laughs> to this moment in his career, the kitchen debate is the most famous foreign policy achievement on Richard Nixon's resume. He looked the Reds in the face and projected strength and confidence. But even more so, he did it on TV. Dick beat the press in a speech. Dick beat Khrushchev in a personal conversation. But what Dick really loved to do was debate. He'd been an excellent college debater. And you could understand where he could get away with thinking, what chance in the world does Jack Kennedy stand against me? And that arrogance starts to bleed into his team strategy. Team Nixon thinks that of the four televised debates scheduled, the first would be the least watched. Because they want to save Nixon's strengths, like foreign policy, for later debates, they allow the Kennedys to pick the first topic, and the Kennedys select domestic issues. Easily JFK's strong suit. And so here's the scene. Both candidates arrive at a Chicago television station. Both refuse studio makeup. Nixon looks thin and awful. Kennedy looks rested and tanned from some open-air campaigning earlier in the week. The lights are on. Good evening. The television and radio stations of the United States and their affiliated stations are proud to provide facilities for a discussion of issues in the current political campaign by the two major candidates for the presidency. Nixon is bad. Not only does he look awful, his mom would actually call the next day to make sure he wasn't sick. But in an effort to even out his sunken cheeks, his campaign staff applied shave stick to his face. This is like a shaving cream-esque product at the time. The melting of that product only made Dick look sweatier on camera. And what's more... Dick's college debate habits, what he thought was a strength, start to backfire on him. Listen to how many times he begins a sentence by agreeing with JFK. The things that Senator Kennedy has said, many of us can agree with. I agree with Senator Kennedy's appraisal generally in this respect. I agree with Senator Kennedy completely on that score. Look, in a long-form live debate, a little agreement can set up a larger point, and that's what Nixon tries to do here. But in this format, broadcasting your point with a little debate rapping is what's effective. Getting your points out matters. Drawing the differences between you and your opponent. On the contrary, JFK does very little agreeing with the vice president, and just like that, Nixon has given away his experience advantage, something that many were counting on going into the general election. Of course, Team Nixon is also wrong about the first debate being the least watched. 59% of all American households watch it live. Only one debate in history is watched by a higher percentage. In history, to this day, the novelty of 
The first television debate is too much to overcome, and the results cement itself into the minds of the voters. At least those who watched on television, according to a poll, which famously says that television viewers believed Kennedy won and radio listeners appreciated Nixon more. So let's talk about that poll. Because it is only one poll. Not a plurality of, of, of polls that came out. One poll. This entire narrative is built on one. It's conducted by Sinlinger and Company, a polling outfit founded by Alfred E. Sinlinger. Sinlinger is famous for pioneering the concept of consumer confidence, the idea that people's collective moods about the economy can accurately predict the future of it. Anyway, Sinlinger and Company survey 2,138 people the day after the debate nationwide. 27% believe Kennedy wins. 18% think Nixon wins. The rest think it's a draw. But that's total audience. So that's anybody who consumed the debate in any broadcast medium. Obviously, a lot of people watched on TV, but this was also radio listeners as well. The number of radio listeners sampled who also had an opinion as to who won is only 178 people. Unlike a modern poll, there is no controlling for candidate preference or region on this poll, meaning the respondents weren't asked if they were supporting one candidate or another, and then that wasn't factored into whether or not you wanted to publish this kind of information. With only 178 people, a random run of Nixon supporters could easily skew those numbers. And that's before we get to the one thing that drives me crazy about this poll, is that it has been so potent in building a narrative that Kennedy won with television viewers and Nixon won with radio viewers, when the one undeniable element of it is that the majority of Americans thought it was a draw. And yet, the poll is just too perfect. After Kennedy wins in the general, it becomes the baseline for our modern myth about the importance of television in politics. Despite only being two years older than JFK, Nixon is cast as the old man who can't take advantage of new tech. Kennedy is the whiz kid who cracks the code and changes the world. The reality? Nixon lost. He didn't take care of himself before the debate, and he choked during it. What's even worse, though, is that the magic bullet debate myth obscures some of the bare-knuckle brilliance of the Kennedy campaign, including the real star of the show. That's the Yellow Rose of Texas. And it's a great way to get into exactly how important Lyndon Baines Johnson is to the Kennedy campaign. See, Johnson had one job. Use his connections in the South to get endorsements and party support from Southern power brokers who believe that they had been abandoned by the party on civil rights. That's it. 
Simple enough. He begins this mission with one extremely shrewd move. He's going to charm the South with a whistle-stop tour. Traveling by train accomplishes a few goals for Johnson. First, he wouldn't have to worry about race laws in various venues. If he's giving speeches from the back of a train, then he can avoid the ire of Southern voters by asking for venues to allow black voters in, or sit in the same area as white voters, or conversely, anger Northern voters by speaking in segregated venues. Second, he would invite influential Democratic power brokers, the guys that he needs to convince on the trip. What seems like a nice little courtesy has a very blunt political purpose. Since these guys that Johnson has to convince are on the train, LBJ can badger those on the fence to come home for Kennedy without interruption or possible exit until they got to their next location hours later. These timeshare-style cell jobs also included a lot of alcohol and yelling and knowing Southern politics, probably a few metaphors about ranching. Still, to the general public, Johnson did soft-pedal civil rights the best ways he could. He employed little details that few Northern reporters would ever pick up on. For example... Instead of instructing the welcoming marching band to play something like Dixie when his train pulled in, he had them play the Yellow Rose of Texas, an anthem for the Texas Confederate Army, enough of a deep cut to stay below the radar of the traveling press. Put simply, LBJ is likely the most consequential factor in this race. Without his work in the South, a very close election would likely have gone the other way. Remember that Eisenhower won Texas in the previous two elections. Johnson wasn't just playing politics. He had to turn back the clock. And still, die-hard former Southern Democrats who felt abandoned by their party remained. No incident typified the resistance and Johnson's masterful handling of it than one afternoon in Dallas with less than a week before Election Day. Johnson and his wife, Lady Bird, are attending an event at the Adolphus Hotel downtown. Waiting for them in the lobby are hundreds of loud, angry, mostly female demonstrators furious about civil rights. The mob is wielding signs that say LBJ, counterfeit Confederate, and let's beat Judas. They would not be denied their rage. It took Johnson and his wife, Lady Bird, 30 minutes to make their way through the seven-foot lobby. Chants of we want Nixon ring out as the pair are cursed and manhandled. One woman with a sign that reads ground ladybird spits directly into Mrs. Johnson's face. And all this happened while television cameras roll. The footage immediately becomes a national story overnight. But more to our point, all of this really happens because LBJ wants it to. When the VP candidate sees the riot in waiting, he waves off his police escort, telling them that if the time has come where he can't walk through a Dallas hotel lobby without protection, he wants to know it. In reality, he wants to milk the chaos for everything he can. And his instinct is dead on. The reaction to the incident exposes an ugly element of Texas politics to voters in the Lone Star State and the rest of the South. This means that some persuadable Southern voters 
are now rethinking whether or not they want to oppose the Democratic ticket. If these are their allies, if this is the incivility that we are bringing, well, maybe Kennedy and Johnson aren't so bad. Final polls before Election Day show an uptick after the Johnson survived the onslaught with dignity. But more importantly, some of the last Democratic power player holdouts give in. One of the most important, Georgia Senator Richard Russell, relents and stumps in Texas for Kennedy, touting the Massachusetts senator as the lesser of two evils. But Johnson isn't the only one who has race issues to deal with for the Kennedy campaign. No, Kennedy's themselves had to deal with a pair of tricky issues during the final weeks. Dr. King uh, was supportive of our movement, and we knew this. And at one of the marches on, at Rich's department store, he participated. He joined that march. And of course, he got arrested. That is Brenda Hill Cole. She is remembering her time as a student protester at Spelman College, specifically one sit-in demonstration in particular. On October 19th, Martin Luther King Jr. is arrested in Atlanta during a sit-in at Rich's department store. Instead of being released with the rest of the protesters, King Jr. is levied an additional charge for driving without a Georgia license. It's a trumped-up charge, but it means that King Jr. now has a four-month sentence at a state prison. Jack and Bobby see an opportunity. See, a few phone calls to the right people, and they had a ready-made campaign victory that could electrify the African-American vote they desperately need to turn out in the South. Other voices on their campaign thought it was suicide. They were already as strong as they could get in the South, actively helping a civil rights activist weeks before the election, could hurt with white voters that they also needed to keep in the Democratic stable. Jack and Bobby went out, and the calls are made. King Jr. is released on bond only two days after his sentence. While the true worth of this power play is unknowable, it did sway at least one very influential black voice. Martin Luther King Sr. At that point, he's an influential preacher in Atlanta who'd previously tacitly supported Nixon. Now compare that to the heartbreak of Sammy Davis Jr. When somebody loves you, it's no good unless she loves you. All the way. Happy this song is from a BBC live special in 1960. It's on YouTube. Go watch it. The entire thing is awesome. As we've talked about on this show, few outside forces are as publicly or privately as influential to the Kennedy campaign as Frank Sinatra. He's brought more star power to the campaign than anyone, and among them was fellow multi-talented Rat Packer Sammy Davis Jr. Davis has previously had a disastrous relationship with white starlet Kim Novak, one that ended with Novak's studio boss leveraging his mob connections to give Sammy a choice. Marry a black woman immediately and publicly or face deadly consequences. He took the first option. He marries black singer Lorraine White, and within months, 
they're divorced. But Sammy's hard-headed. He is not going to be so deterred the next time. And the next time's name is May Britt, a Swedish stunner who quickly fell in love with Sammy. And on June 6th, 1960, the pair announce their engagement. And Frank Sinatra accepts Sammy's invitation to be his best man at the wedding. A few days later, Sammy is at the Democratic National Convention to sing the national anthem with his friend Frank. All the other stars on stage get applause, except for Sammy, who gets booed. Which, in the minds of the Kennedys, kind of makes him a liability for life. Even more so because Sammy's wedding was going to happen before election day with their star surrogate as the best man. And still, Sinatra held the line. He cares about loyalty. He'd already earned his stripes with the Kennedy family. This was something he won't budge on. He's going to be Sammy's best man. And yet, Sammy knows how much the campaign means to Sinatra. So he postpones his own wedding to November 13th, eight days after the election. That's a good gesture, right? That's something that it seems like in our modern context, like, okay, obviously it's kind of screwed up that this is the line in the sand the Kennedys are drawing, but we all got what we wanted at the end, right? What did it earn Sammy from the Kennedys? A lifetime of resentment. Once scheduled to perform at the inaugural ball for Kennedy, which was being booked by Frank, Sammy is uninvited when the Kennedys find out. So let me ask you a question. What's the difference between Martin Luther King and Sammy Davis Jr. One can deliver votes, the other can only deliver embarrassment. I'm gonna love you all the way. Everything with the Kennedy campaign is viewed through the lens of the media. And the true technological legacy of the 1960 Kennedy campaign is how they took advantage of one of the newest inventions to affect the medium. Videotape. Here's something that no one has ever done up to this point. And I, I, I underline here that they are way ahead of their time. The Kennedys not only use their videotape machine to help Jack refine his speeches, they do something amazing. They take very good speeches or campaign appearances and then edit those tapes down to three versions. A minute-long version, a 30-second version, and a 15-second version. Why those three? Because those are the three news holes that television stations use when they are putting together their broadcasts. So the Kennedys send those tapes unsolicited to television stations around the country. And more than that, they strategically send the tapes to markets where they know certain speeches will resonate based on their polling. This strategy leads to hours 
of free play on the evening news in the markets that matter the most. By the time that Kennedy fans see their man conquer live in primetime during the debates, they already have been following his journey. He achieves this by making the media's job very, very easy. Sure. Now we look at it and say, well, that's an undistilled commercial from the campaign embedded in the news. But who else is sending footage for a major national story in the proper formatting unprovoked? Everyone likes a little shortcut at their job, and the media is no different. It's hard not to see the similarities to the Trump campaign here. He also identified a need for the television industry. With the rise of the internet and cord cutting, things are getting dire for cable news. You have to wonder, what's the point of a TV channel that repeats headlines and videos I can watch on my phone whenever I want? And then, Trump arrives. Every morning, on cue, he sets your agenda with a tweet storm. The more controversial, the better. And sometimes... He'll even call into your morning show to explain himself further. Every night, he's either on the road at a rally that you can run live, or he's guesting on one of your shows. It's the same playbook. If you make it easy, you own the platform. Of course, years before Trump runs, here's how Kennedy makes the best use of this strategy. Right before the 1960 debates, a tantalizing opportunity lands in the lap of the campaign. A statewide group of Protestant ministers invite Kennedy to speak at their conference in Houston. It'll be a hostile crowd, and he has a mandatory Q&A if he wants to take the opportunity. Many members of the Kennedy campaign caution against an appearance. It's very plainly a death trap. The organization will stock the crowd with stern ministers who would love nothing more than to ruin the chances of the first Catholic president. And yet, Kennedy and Johnson smell a made-for-television spectacle. The young Catholic candidate faces his toughest test yet. If he can charm these guys, he can charm anyone. In the face of such a biblical challenge, gosh dang it, Kennedy delivers. For while this year it may be a Catholic against whom the finger of suspicion is pointed, in other years it has been, and may someday be again, a Jew or a Quaker or a Unitarian, or a Baptist. It was Virginia's harassment of Baptist preachers, for example, that led to Jefferson's statute of religious freedom. Today I may be the victim, but tomorrow it may be you. The speech becomes one of Kennedy's most famous, but delivering those pre-cut clips to districts around the country that needed convincing is the stroke of brilliance. Not only those that might still need to be persuaded on the Catholic issue, but also to African-American communities, to Jewish communities, who saw him as an outsider breaking up the old boys' club. Sure, he'd be the first Catholic, but if that door was open for him, what about the next first? What about the first black president? What about the first Jewish president? All of those decisions, the train, MLK, Houston, the hotel debacle, Sammy Davis Jr. and more, combined shrewd, sometimes heartless politics and campaigning with a showman's sense of presentation. That is the Kennedy campaign working at its highest level. But that's not to say that there aren't rumors of things a little 
underhanded. What if I told you that mere days before Election Day, Richard Nixon found out that someone tied to the Kennedy campaign had stolen something very important from him? What if he found out that a private investigator lied about his identity to gain an audience with Nixon's doctor in New York. And after that doctor went to take a call in another room, that private investigator steals the Republican presidential nominee's personal files. How do you think that would make him feel? What if he never makes a big deal about it? What if he just thinks it's part of the game? Well, here's what we know. We know there is a private eye by the name of Gunther Reinhardt. And this guy is a piece of work. International reporter, a rat for Hoover's FBI, and a man who once correctly predicted Pearl Harbor because he noticed that the Japanese members of the Foreign Press Club in D.C. had not paid their dues on time. But during 1960, he's chasing down one rumor. And here it is. Since 1952... Richard Nixon has seen a psychotherapist. Understand, we are a long way away from every Netflix series being a complicated protagonist who understands the value of therapy. In 1960, only people with broken brains need to see a brain doctor. Or so the common wisdom goes. If it's confirmed, that Nixon is and has been seeing a shrink for so long, it's a national scandal. Reinhardt has it on good authority that Nixon's man is Dr. Arnold Hutchnecker, himself a fascinating figure who once survived a Russian firing squad during World War I. On one afternoon, according to Reinhardt, he shows up at Hutchnecker's office for an appointment. He tells the doctor that he is an advanced man for a very powerful family in Pennsylvania. They have a son who's bound to be a player in politics, but he needs to keep treatment very discreet. Hutchnecker says he's the man for the job. After all, he's been seeing the second most powerful man in America For eight years. According to the private investigator Reinhardt, the Dr. Hutchnecker demonstrates how discreet he is by indicating that Nixon's file is right below his desk where no one could ever get it. And just then, a call comes in for the doctor. He leaves the room to answer it. Our private investigator Reinhardt moves around the desk and allegedly snatches the file. It's a coordinated attempt to steal damaging information for political purposes. So, did it really happen? Well, Nixon is seeing Hutchnecker at this time. And... He had been seeing him since 1952. Reinhardt did visit the doctor that day. The rest is up for debate. As it turns out, Reinhardt has a nasty habit of stretching the truth to keep his clients happy. And Nixon's file never turns up. It seems reasonable that Reinhardt might have gone, confirmed that Hutchnecker was Nixon's doctor, and then fibbed the rest to make it sound better. File or no, it appears likely that somebody was aware of the fact that Nixon was seeing a shrink. And if we are going to narrow down the list of people that would be currently spending money to find out such information, it seems 
probable that that information either gets back to the Kennedys if they did not order it themselves. So let's indulge a little rumor mongering and say that indeed this was something that was ordered by the Kennedys. If they're sitting on this information, why don't they just nuke Nixon from orbit with it? Because Jack had a bigger medical secret to keep. His Addison's disease. Sure, talk therapy has a stigma. Addison's has a death sentence. So it stands to reason that the Kennedys could sit on this information as a failsafe to combat a Nixon offensive into Jack's health. And if that is the case, if we are to put those hypothetical pieces together, then one little incident in the final weeks of the campaign makes a lot of sense. On November 3rd, Nixon surrogate John Roosevelt, the youngest son of FDR, not FDR Jr., who the Kennedys abused in West Virginia, says at a news conference in Syracuse, New York, that there are rumors JFK has Addison's disease. He thinks it's only proper for both candidates to reveal their medical records. Shortly after that, during a speech in Oakland, Nixon offers to make his medical records available by the following Monday at 10 a.m. to clear up any rumors. That same night, days before Election Day, at a peaceful country home in Connecticut with an unlisted number, Dr. Hutchnecker gets a call. The person on the other line says it's the Associated Press, and they're looking for comment about his treatment of Richard Nixon. The doctor refuses comment, hangs up, and calls Richard Nixon. No story ever runs from the Associated Press about Nixon's therapy, leading some to believe that the call didn't come from a reporter at all. It came from somebody in the Kennedy campaign making sure that Nixon knew if he wanted to press on Addison's, they had the goods on him. Nixon never released his medical records that Monday. We do not know exactly what's true here. But Nixon is aware that somebody lied their way into knowledge of a politically damaging secret. That's for sure. Considering Nixon's later fall from grace, where he directs his own operatives to break into an opponent's headquarters during a campaign, you can't help but wonder how much an experience like this sticks with Dick. If this is how the game is played, then the winner is the one who plays it bolder. Maybe that's what's on Nixon's mind in the final weeks of the campaign when he's holding a massive rally with Eisenhower in Manhattan. Maybe that's what's on his mind when he sees the final polls of the election. Two give Kennedy a slight edge, one gives Nixon the same. Maybe that's what's on his mind when he takes a final flight as a candidate back home to Los Angeles. The race is over. Nixon travels 65,000 miles and completes his 50-state pledge. Kennedy goes 44,000 and visits 45 states. They'd said everything they could. Now, it was America's turn to speak.
Raise the Dead is research, written, recorded, and performed by me, Justin Robert Young. You can find a full list of the sources that were used for this series at our website, raisethedeadpodcast.com. It's where you can also find our audiobook compilation and ebook of transcripts, which both include a bonus episode. I'd like to thank my senior strategist, Mar Sandell, along with Tom Merritt, Brett Roundsville, and John Teasdale for their extraordinary patience in uh, helping me put this together. You can send me an email, theyoungamerican at gmail.com, or you can reach me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. It's the same handle for Instagram, too, if that's more your speed. And thank you to Lugamare in Oakland, California, for your fantastic research facilities. All right, now a few things that I didn't have a chance to get to. Let's start with Eisenhower's role in the campaign uh, from the meta perspective. There is a lot that we don't know about exactly why he was so scarce. Theoretically, Eisenhower would have been Nixon's biggest weapon on the trail because at this point, Eisenhower is still very popular. He doesn't really make his presence felt until very late in the campaign. And even then, the stops are in New York, which is odd because if he were in Pennsylvania or one of the other states that were a lot closer, like, look, Nixon was not going to win New York. It's just, that's a fact. So why go and waste your top surrogate there? One of the reasons why... It has been explained that Eisenhower was not on the campaign more was for health reasons. Specifically, he had a bad heart. He had suffered a heart attack before he ran for the second time in 1956. So Ike's wife, Mamie, writes to Pat Nixon and asks her wife to wife to limit Ike's time on the road because she was afraid for his health. I don't know how much that really plays into it, but it was a real letter and it was certainly written. Ike, you can make the argument, actually hurt Nixon. And this is something that comes up during the debates. But Eisenhower has this moment in front of the press where the press is asking Ike what Nixon did during his time as vice president. Ike's reaction is, if you give me a week, I might be able to think of one I don't remember. Ike immediately regrets saying this and apologizes to Nixon for it, but it sticks around that Dick was kind of a do-nothing vice president. And so, a possible tremendous strength for the Nixon campaign becomes a liability, and then when they finally get him out there, they probably put him in the wrong geographical location. By the way, we know that the Kennedy campaign was very scared of Ike. They did not want him out there on the trail. The campaign stops that Kennedy is holding while the Eisenhower stuff is going on is uncharacteristically defensive for the Kennedy campaign, which kind of prides themselves on on leading the messaging as opposed to responding to it. So we touched a little bit on the kitchen debate, but I just want to encourage you guys to go and and check out the story there. Uh, It's really fascinating. The USSR and American governments agree that they are both going to air the exact same footage at the exact same time. And it's really just this great example of how the media runs our, you know, dissemination of information and how top down it was in the USSR that eventually the American media just gets tired of waiting for the USSR to edit things the way that they want to and they just run it. And that, you know, really annoys the USSR and the USSR does run it, but it's at like a graveyard time slot. Meanwhile, Khrushchev not only is impressed with Nixon, but then claims that he would do everything he could to bring about Nixon's defeat in 1960, uh, which is amazing. 
that, <laughs> I mean, for all that we talk about uh, a Russian collusion and Russian interference, imagine if Vladimir Putin came out and just in his own words said, yeah, I- I'm picking the other one. I'm going to do everything I can to sandbag this person's campaign. Although I will say there's no outward sign that Khrushchev had any negative effect on Nixon. Next time, America goes to vote. America makes a choice. A decades-long plan comes to fruition. A decade-long comeback begins. Anticipation, suspense, and a conspiracy that one of the most revered presidents in history got to the White House by treacherous and nefarious means. It's election day. On the season finale of Raise the Dead. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>